Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music, music teachers. teachers. This is episode 63 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today I'm sharing the most important things for your preschool piano teaching toolkit. Welcome back, beautiful teachers. Today's episode is a little bit longer than usual, well, quite a lot longer than usual, because it's a talk I'm sharing with you that I prepared for NCQP, the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, which is held every two years outside Chicago in Illinois. So I attended the conference in July 2019 and gave a presentation there about the five foundations of preschool piano teaching, successful preschool piano teaching. And I wanted to share the talk with you here. Now I'll make a couple of references to things that are on screen. So if you're a member of Vibrant Music Teaching, you can get the talk with the slides on screen that you can see uh, to further enhance it. But if you're just listening on the podcast and you're not a member, you still should be able to get a lot out of this as well and gather what I'm talking about. And the references I'm making to the screen aren't really going to stop you from enjoying the talk, which is why I wanted to share it here. So I really hope you enjoy this talk. I'll make some references as well to a download page that was just for the attendees. But again, members can get those resources. They'll be familiar with them inside the library. I hope you enjoy the talk and let me know if you have any questions in the Facebook group after you've listened. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad that you could join me today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Nicola Canton. I am from Dublin in Ireland, so if I say something today that you don't understand in my accent or use a phrase that doesn't make any sense to you accidentally, then please let me know, put up your hand and say, uh, what was that you said? You may know some of my work from online, from Colourful Keys, which is my blog, or my membership site, vibrantmusicteaching.com, or my two books, Rhythm in Five or The Piano Practice Physician's Handbook. I'm here today to talk to you about preschool teaching and I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic because preschool teaching is actually one of the reasons that I started my blog Colourful Keys in the first place. I started the blog because I was discovering so much about how I could teach with games and creativity and I discovered that because of my work with preschoolers because I had to do that. Preschool teaching has also done an enormous amount for my studio and I'm sure it can do a huge amount for yours too, whether you're just getting into it now or you're looking to expand or just improve your preschool teaching. I started teaching preschoolers when I moved, so I took a wee break from teaching 
Then I moved a couple of neighborhoods over, but it was enough, far enough over that I basically knew no one in the area and didn't have any connections, you know, didn't go to school nearby, anything like that. And it also was an area that is maybe traditionally not as strong on kids taking instrumental lessons when they're young. Where I grew up, that's a fairly standard thing. Not that every kid does it, but it's a, it's a fairly usual thing. Whereas where I had moved to, slightly less affluent area, not such a strong tradition of kids taking piano lessons growing up. And also a lot of piano teachers in the area because it's affordable. So I had those two sides of the coin and I knew I needed to do something differently with my marketing. I knew that if I just put up a flyer on one of these notice boards or all the notice boards I could find, that things were going to move pretty slowly. And this was the time when I was looking to get into teaching full time rather than just part time as I had been doing previously. So I knew I needed to do something a bit differently. And that's when I came across this idea of teaching preschool students and realized that if other people could do it and I could see online that other people were doing it, then I could do it too. So I'm not one to shy away from a challenge. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew it was going to be possible. So I dove straight in and I got in touch with some various preschools and Montessori's and lucked out because one of the owners of a Montessori nearby had a daughter who was three going on four years old. And she became my first preschool student. And of course, since her mum was running a Montessori, she was able to put me in touch with several other families. And so the word spread. And it's really the basis of how I established my studio in this new area with this competitive market and with this lack of a huge amount of desire in preschool lessons as well. So, of course, marketing yourself as a preschool teacher doesn't mean that you're not going to get students of other ages, because certainly once people pass my name on because of this interesting thing I was doing, right, I was teaching preschoolers and almost no one was in Dublin at the time and still not really now. It's a big point of difference for my studio. So because I was teaching preschoolers and teaching them differently, they could see the work I was doing and that I was using games and creativity to teach them. And so my name started to spread to older students, to parents of students, kids with special needs as well, who knew that I was open to taking this different approach, right? So it's really what established me in this new area for younger students and for older students. It made me stand out from the crowd and it can do that for you too. When you're marketing yourself as teaching the youngest students, you automatically stand out because not every other teacher is going to be doing that. And it also is going to transform the way you teach because you can't teach preschoolers the way you teach others. And it has taught me an enormous amount about teaching in general and made me a better teacher for all my students. The other big benefit of teaching preschoolers, of course, is that you might be able to finish earlier. And that might be the reason that you're here today, that you want to finish earlier in the day, or perhaps you want to make more money by expanding your hours, still finishing at the same time, but starting earlier in the day and expanding your hours. Or maybe you've been packing in the students like sardines, and now's the time when you want to start including breaks. And you can do all that by teaching preschoolers because they either are not in any kind of school at all, 
or they're in something like a Montessori that tends to get out earlier in the day. So I have had to develop a whole new toolkit for teaching as I dove into teaching preschoolers and find my feet with it. And I want to share the five foundational aspects of teaching these young students that are really going to help you be more successful with them and are going to get you off to the best possible start or improve your preschool teaching as you move forward. The five foundations which we're going to walk through today are posture and pointers, which is all about technique, patterns, which is about identifying visual and oral patterns, pace and progress in the planning of preschool lessons, parents and how much involvement they should have in the preschool lessons, and play. So our first area we want to look at is posture and pointers, in other words, technique. And before we even launch into this, I want to improve your posture a little bit. So now that we've met, I hope you trust me enough to do something a little bit silly. So can you all stand up? And if there's people beside you, you won't be able to do big movements, but just do your best not to hit anyone around you and still do these movements. So the first one is just to swing your arms around by your side, sometimes called knocking on heaven's door. Great. And then we're going to lift our arms up and just let them fall all the way down. No tension at all. Just let them fall. Then we'll lift them up, 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 up again. And let them fall down. And now let's do some wrist circles. Okay, so just circling around with the wrist. And finally, let's lift our shoulders all the way up to their ears. Introduce loads of tension. Scrunch up your face tiny, really, really tight. And then let it all. Okay, you can sit back down. Hope that loosened you up a bit and helped you feel a bit better. So when it comes to posture and preschool lessons, I know that when I brought up this topic, some of you may have been rolling your eyes internally. Far too polite to do it to my face, but internally thinking, yeah, I know how to teach posture. I know how to teach how people how to sit. That's not what I'm here for. But there's a reason I wanted to cover this in depth. So bear with me um, while we get a taste for why this is so important and why you need to think differently about this in preschool piano lessons. So we're going to start with the basics, create an absolutely stable base so that wiggling can happen where it should be happening and so that they feel balanced when we need them to stay balanced and to stay rooted in their position. So to explain why I wanted to cover this thoroughly, even if you may already know about good posture and all of that good stuff. I'm going to take you to an alternate universe. So I'm going to ask you to put on your little imagination hats for just a moment and go with me to a town called Grownupville. Now, Grownupville looks pretty similar to our world and a town in our world. It has, you know, buildings that are similar and there's people that look like humans, but they're really quite tall. They're about nine feet, so nine foot tall taller than any basketball player that you've ever met. And they also speak a language that is almost English. And we recognise a lot of the words, but they have a few thousand extra words in their language. So you can think about it like you're trying to read a Jane Austen novel, but about three times fancier sounding than that. Okay, so you can understand them most of the time, but sometimes they include so many unfamiliar words that it just goes way over your head. And in Grownupville, we're staying with the host and the host tells us that the tooth prani is the absolute favourite instrument of Grownupville and that we have to learn it. We're going to take some lessons. They bought us some lessons, 
get us going. We think, great, okay. Now the Tuprani looks pretty much like a piano, except for some key differences. So it's about eight foot wide. The height to the keys is about four feet. And the key width is about one and a half inches. And by the way, to those of you from the side of the Atlantic that I'm from, talking in imperial measurements today for ease for all of you US guys. But if you're not from over here, then that 1.5 inches, that's about four centimeters. So it's pretty wide, okay? If you can't picture that, just to help you frame how big this th instrument is, there are the measurements on the actual Tufrani. And this is a grand Tufrani. And to give you a better idea, a better sense of how we would fit into this picture, there we are, about there, okay? So if we sit up at the Tufrani, we're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. First of all, when we're standing, we can just about reach the keys, right? And we can't really see the whole thing at the same time because we're right at, it's almost at head height there. And when we sit up and it, if we sit on that bench there, our legs are going to be dangling. And if you close your eyes for a minute and just imagine it's eight feet wide and your arm width is going to be about between five and six feet, right? Same as your height. So you can't quite reach from one side to the other. You're going to have to stretch over to one side and stretch over to the other side. So open your eyes again. How did that feel? Pretty, pretty uncomfortable? A little bit uneasy? So that is how a preschooler is going to feel if you just set them up at the piano without considering their different size, right? They're just very small little humans. So we need to introduce these essentials for stability. Ideally, you'll have an adjustable bench. And it really needs to go very high. So you know the guideline of having your arms parallel to the floor. That's a great one to go by. So when they have their hands on the keys, their arms should be parallel to the floor. And for on a lot of adjustable benches, this is actually the maximum setting. If you have a three or four year old, it's going to be up at it's very higher than you expect it to need to be if you're getting into this for the first time. And you really need to take your time to set that up in the beginning because you won't be able to accurately judge straight away and you'll need to do some adjusting and then you'll get used to it. If you don't have an adjustable bench, of course, you can put things on it to make it taller. But just consider the stability of those things because you want to make sure that the preschooler, the student is actually stable while being up high enough. So cushions aren't going to be a good idea. Even books, you know, if they're wobbling slightly, just picture yourself at the tooth cranny. And how uncomfortable you would be if, while you can't reach from one side to the other and you're going to be asked to, you also are on kind of a teeter-tottering object. It's not going to be comfortable at all. So that's the adjustable bench. Then you also need either a pedal extender or a footstool. Now, pedal extenders are pricey. But if you're going to get into teaching preschoolers in a big way, if it's going to become a big part of your studio, I highly recommend considering it. The reason for that is, you may have seven or eight-year-old students and you may get by with just having them occasionally stand to reach the pedals or just waiting until they're tall enough. But with a preschooler, first of all, if they stand and reach the pedal, they're barely going to be able to reach the keys anymore because they have to reach under the piano and then out again. So it doesn't work in the same way. Their legs are just not long enough for that to reach underneath and still their torso is then at such an angle that they can't reach the keys properly. So that's out as an option. The other consideration is that a seven-year-old who starts with you can't reach the pedal until they're maybe nine, let's say. Okay, 
So maybe you wait until they're nine. They're two years into lessons by that stage. It's maybe not ideal, but it's not terrible, right? They've only spent two years working without the pedal or while standing and playing the pedal. If you have a three or four-year-old, by the time they're nine, they've been learning for five or six years. And I just don't think it's good enough to wait for five or six years to explore the pedal because it's basically the magic button on the piano. That's what I call it anyway with my students. It makes everything sound so much more wonderful. And to leave that for five or six years into studies is just not really good enough. Now, I absolutely understand the cost. And trust me, it's even worse if you're in Ireland and you have to get it shipped over because we don't have anyone even vaguely local making pedal extenders. It is worth it if you get into this in the big way. In the meantime, a footstool is vital so that they have something to put their feet on and it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be fancy. This one in the picture here is just from Ikea. It happens to be quite tall, so it's taller than a standard footstool. So just look into the sizing because a standard step stool, like one that's designed for a bathroom, is not going to be high enough for a three or four year old. So now that they have their stable base, we're going to look at some finer details of how I teach technique to preschoolers. So I believe in teaching whole arm movement first and them only using one finger. And I don't specify which finger they're going to use. So I'll usually demonstrate using finger two, but if they happen to use finger three or if they one day come in and get the idea to use finger five, I'm not going to correct them. I don't mind. I just tell them, just use one of your fingers to play this song. Or I might not even say anything, but I just demonstrate using one finger at a time and they'll always copy me. And when they are using one finger, they're hopping from key to key. So they're using their whole arm to move. And it's a great base to establish of technique at the piano. At the same time as this, I'm developing their dexterity away from the piano. So it's kind of a two-sided approach. At the piano, we're being very gentle and taking a very slow progression towards technique where they're using all of their fingers because their fingers are just not developed enough to be able to do that without tension. Away from the piano, we're developing a dexterity using things like finger play rhymes, which we're going to go through in a second. So I leave it up to my students to use more fingers when they feel ready to do so. And this works very well for me, and especially in my group classes for some reason, possibly because it is a slower progression. Students just come to this naturally. So we'll be playing songs with just do, re, mi, just three notes. And at some stage during their first year, they just start using three fingers, two, three and four, and they just start doing it themselves and they do it with freedom and completely relaxed in their upper body. So to understand why I avoid this five finger position so vehemently and for quite a while, I want to take you back to Grown Upville for a second and you should have a card that was under your seat there. It looks something like this. So you may not have even noticed these lines on the back. There's a link on the front of it, which will give you tons of resources that I'm mentioning today in today's presentation. So you can go to that link whenever you like later on today or when you get home to download those resources. But there's also these rectangles on the sheet. And what these rectangles are is tooth pranny keys. So these are the width of our tooth pranny keys, almost four centimeters, almost one and a half inches. And I want you to try putting your five fingers on them because this is very loosely now, mathematically but loosely. I've done my maths to work out roughly our average hand size and roughly a four-year-old ha average hand size and how they relate. 
And if you put your fingers on those keys, you'll feel you can't really do it comfortably, right? You can't, if you have an enormous hand, then, you know, it would have to be adjusted for your particular measurements. But I can't do that comfortably. I can feel the tension in my hand. And when we force our preschool students into those five finger positions, we tend to end up with something as hideously uncomfortable looking as this. Does this make you wince? It physically pains me to look at. Now, I know she's almost reaching a six, but still, it's very uncomfortable. The knuckle bridge is collapsing. The student looks like they're trying to do what they're supposed to do, which is curve their fingers. That's what they've been told. But it's incredibly tense and uncomfortable looking. And when we take a slower approach than this, when I let my students use one finger at a time, gradually introduce more fingers when they're ready, they play with much more relaxation. They retract their hand when it's not playing, which is what we do, by the way, when we're playing. We don't leave our fingers spread out. We let them retract and we expand them when we need to use them. Okay, so that's why I take this particular approach. Now, at the same time, as I said, I'm building their awareness away from the piano. And I'm building awareness of their whole body and of their individual fingers. So first of all, this is the warm-up routine we did at the start here. We did swinging our arms by our sides, lifting and dropping them, wrist circles, and shoulders up and roll back, or shoulders up to your ears and dropping down. I do this warm-up routine with all of my preschool students, and with a lot of my students, just maybe not quite as regularly. I find it really beneficial to get them into their bodies and into the physical nature of playing the instrument because it is physical. It is a physical activity and we often treat it as being entirely intellectual. So by doing this, they become aware of the different parts of their body. They get used to uh, moving with freedom. And, you know, a preschooler is not really aware that they have shoulders and wrists and elbows and all these different joints. They just sort of think they have arms and then a hand and not even fingers. Right. So these are gentle ways to bring them into their body and bring awareness to all the different parts of their body so that we don't get us asking them to lift their arms or their wrists and them lifting their shoulders up to the ears. It's very common with young kids. Now, the other side of this is the finger plays, and that's to work on individual finger dexterity. And I have a whole collection of these which are on that link, which is on your sheet. And I'll also share at the end of the presentation if you want to take a photo of it on your phone if that's easier. So at that link, you'll find the finger plays. And this is the very first one of those. We'll try it out together. Dancing fingers in the air, dancing fingers in my hair, dancing fingers on my knees, dancing fingers on the keys. Okay, and we'll do this on air piano or if we're at the piano, we'll touch the top of the keys, um, but not actually play. So this is completely separate from our piano playing but it builds their dexterity. And this is the very first one, as I said. So this is just about wiggling the fingers and then gradually it'll build up. You'll see on the sheets if you download them that it builds up to more individual finger lifting and moving and interacting in different ways. Okay, our third foundational block is patterns. And the big thing about patterns with preschoolers is that they can't actually see them to the same degree that we can. And patterns are music. Music is patterns in a big way. There are oral and visual patterns involved in music. There's the piano keys, for example, there's reading patterns, rhythm patterns, and all sorts of other patterns. Music is made up of patterns. And if preschoolers can't see them or can't hear them, then we're in for a rocky road ahead. So to understand the preschoolers' perspective on patterns, we'll go back to Grown Upville again. 
and we're going to look at the Tufrani keys. And this is going to be your first note on the Tufrani. I'm going to show you in just a moment. But first of all, let's look at them. What do we notice? Ah, we don't have our normal black key pattern. It's just all black keys all the way across. No groups of twos and threes. And that makes it very difficult to find our way around. And if you're thinking, yeah, but the piano doesn't look like that. It has this really easy to read pattern. Well, for a preschooler, from my experience working with them and talking to them and interacting with them, a lot of the time when they first sit down at that piano, they are seeing this. They cannot see that pattern. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like our beautiful toothbrani here. So I'm going to show you the first note on your toothbrani. It's called middle gamma. There it is there. Hopefully you can see that. And now let's look at this beautiful drawing by Escher. Does anyone know Escher? Any Escher fans here? Escher draws beautiful things based on messing with patterns. Very interesting. But that was just a distraction. Can you remember where middle gamma was? Okay, look directly at the key that you think it is. Visualize it and pinpoint it. And let's see if you're right. Is that where you thought it was? Of course, it wouldn't actually be right in front of you on a screen and no one would label it for you. It would just be flat in front of you and someone would point to it <laughs> um, if it was middle C. Now let's meet it on the flibbity. This is middle gamma on the flibbity. Again, lots of confusing squiggles, harder to follow patterns. Could you really follow this? Maybe after some practice. But again, that was just a distraction. Let's go back to the Tiffbrani. Can you remember where middle gamma is? So maybe by now you're starting to find it, but you're also seeing how hard it is, how challenging it is to figure out where things are on the piano. And that's just one instance where we need patterns if you're not seeing that pattern. And this, things like spot the difference diagrams or where's Wally or where's Waldo over here aren't just distractions that we give to kids so that they be quiet for a little while, right? They're actually great practice for making our kids into super pattern seekers, which is what we are. We are pattern seeking superheroes. We are amazing at doing this. In fact, we're so good at seeking patterns that we see them where they're not. If you have a favorite sports team and you ever wore red socks to their game and they won, perhaps you decided that was a pattern and you wore your red socks to all of their games forever. Those kind of superstitions are just us pretending to ourselves or seeking a pattern that isn't there. Sorry to break it to you, it's not there. But that's how finely tuned we are to seek patterns in everything. And the work of Mr. Escher that I showed you earlier is also based around our love of patterns. And he breaks those patterns a little bit in a way that we just find completely delightful because we're so highly trained to seek out those patterns and expect them to be one way. So the problem with patterns when you're teaching preschoolers is that we're trained to be these super pattern seekers, but preschoolers aren't yet. They're going to do some work, they're going to put in the effort and they're going to become just like us, but they're not there yet. And everything in music depends on these patterns. So we need to provide hooks and manipulatives to help them seek out those patterns when they're not seeing them or not hearing them. A good example of a hook is something called the memory palace. So if you haven't heard of the memory palace, this is a memorization technique that is often used by people who participate in memory competitions, right? So in some memory competitions, one of the typical things that they have to do 
is to memorize a deck of cards in the exact order that they're in. And they're given a certain amount of time to do this. And one of the ways that they memorize it is they use a building that they're very familiar with. So for me, it would be my childhood home where I grew up, my parents' house. And what they do is walk in the door, imagine walking in the door of this well-known building and place the things they need to remember along their journey. So for example, I would walk in the door of my parents' house and on the dresser in the front of the front door, I might see the Queen of Hearts and she's blowing me a kiss from the dresser, right? If she's the first card in my pack. And then maybe the next one is the Jack of Spades. So I see the Jack sliding down the staircase, down the banisters and almost smacking me in the face with his spade by mistake when he gets to the bottom. So the Memory Palace is just a way of us hooking new information and patterns into things that we already know. And a great way I do this in preschool lessons is my dogs and frogs. And again, this is on the download page for you if you want to use these. So these are just little cards that I put on the keys. And the dog exactly fits the two and the frog exactly fits the three. So these are both a hook and a manipulative. So they're a hook because if there's one thing preschoolers know, it is animals. Animals in the rainbow, those are their specialist topics, right? So they already know dogs and frogs, and I'm giving them a new association for those things so that they can label these groups in a way that they understand. And they can also move these cards around and see how there's a gap because the frog doesn't actually fit correctly in certain places on the piano. We also develop this kind of in a reverse way using keyboard builder cards. And these are cards with the groups of three black keys and they have to build the pattern on the floor and build their own keyboard. And then later on, we'll do something like the piano builder where they have to build it from scratch, putting the black keys onto the white keys. Okay, so we've built a pretty good foundation so far. Now we need to talk about the pace and progress of our preschool lessons because it's really quite different to teaching older students. It has to be developmentally appropriate because time feels different to our preschool students. If you've ever lived abroad or even maybe been on a long holiday, you will have experienced this phenomenon. When a lot of stuff is new, new to you, it actually feels like time is moving simultaneously more slowly and more quickly, right? If you live abroad for a year, you will experience this feels very strange. And that's kind of what's happening for preschoolers because everything in their environment or more of their environment is new, just like you when you're living in a new city. So time feels and moves differently for them. Activities are also less predictable because they don't have these categories that we have. Again, another pattern. We have these built up categories of this is the kind of thing we do when we go here. These are the kinds of objects I find when I go there. Preschoolers do not have that. You also need to consider movement much more thoroughly when it comes to preschool lessons. And you've probably already come across this idea if you've done some looking into teaching preschoolers, even if you haven't started teaching them yet. We talk about the wiggles, right? And that happens because preschoolers need to change between sedentary and movement-based activities much more often. And we also need to be more careful about mixing the difficulty levels, because a lot of things are very challenging for our preschool students. And so we need to be very conscious of whether something, whether we're doing two difficult things, two challenging things in a row, or two new things in a row. It's better to do something new and challenging, and then something comfortable and familiar. 
So let's go back to the grown-up bill for another quick sec and talk about this idea of pacing. For a preschooler, this is the equivalent in a tooth pranny lesson. So if we go back to our tooth pranny lesson, let's imagine that each of the individual activities that you have to do with your tooth pranny teacher, some of them last 55 minutes and some of them last two minutes. And when she starts an activity, she doesn't tell you which one it's going to be. So going in, you never have any idea whether it's going to be 55 or two. Wouldn't you have trouble focusing on the activity? Wouldn't you find it difficult to track where you are and to feel comfortable and to focus? Because you never have any idea how long it's going to take before she moves on to the next thing or how long you have to digest this information. So it's much more difficult to do so. Or let's say that in your tooth brandy lesson, you sometimes do some knitting and sometimes you go skydiving and other times you wash hedgehogs. Okay, I know what you're thinking. That's crazy. There's no way I would ever wash hedgehogs in a piano lesson. No, you wouldn't. But think about this. Preschoolers don't have the category of music or of lessons yet. They haven't developed those categories. So to them, the fact that you sometimes get up and march around the room, you sometimes listen to music and pat your legs, you sometimes build things using blocks, you're sometimes sitting at the piano and playing, you're sometimes singing. That's not all one understandable category to them. Just like these three things don't fit together for us. So we need to make our preschool lessons even more predictable and establish a much stronger routine than we do with older students. So think boring. Take it to the stage of it actually being boring for an older student or for you. Create a routine and tell them the routine. Make sure you actually communicate it with them. Repeat the activities. Often individual activities can be repeated throughout a lesson, just not in a row. The preschoolers won't stand for repeating something again and again in a row. Like there will many of us, right? But if you come back to that thing 10 minutes later or the next week and the following week and the following week, they really will not mind. They'll love the repetition as long as there's little bits of newness thrown into the mix. And as well as telling them the routine, you should also use a visual aid to help them keep track of the routine throughout the lesson. So I use these visual lesson plan cards that I made. These are also available on that page. In each card, there's the word for my older students, but there's also a symbol to represent the activity. And I'll do the same routine with the same student each week, if they're a preschooler, and they'll be able to follow that. So we can point to them and talk about it at the start of the lesson. We're going to do this and then this and then this. And I'll do that when it's a new routine for several weeks. We'll do that. And then any time that they ask a question about what's coming up or when we're going to get to play a game or when we're going to get to improvise or whatever their favorite part is, we can point together and say, okay, what are we doing now? We're doing technique. So that's the hand shape. Then we've got this, then we've got that. And they feel so much more at ease. They love being able to look at it and in a group class, answer each other's questions about what's coming up and where we are and what we're doing next and preempt me, you know? so. I'll say, and now we're going to do, and they'll say, it's game time. And they love being able to track their progress through the lesson in that way. And you'll get far less questions about when it's going to be home time or when their mum is going to come back. Now, the other side of pacing is progress. 
And progress is the bigger picture idea, right? So we've talked so far about pacing individual lessons, but what about pacing in general or their progress over several months or over several years? How can we measure that? This is one of the biggest frustrations that I see teachers having when they get into teaching preschoolers. And it's because they just have a different idea about what a lesson should look like and what progress should look like. So I want to encourage you to think about their lessons as music rather than piano. And this is actually true for all our students if we really think about it, because it's not like, well, at least in Ireland, and I believe also in the US, it's not like they're receiving this full comprehensive music training in school, right? If we're lucky, they're getting one class a week. So if that's the case, we have to teach all of music and we're teaching it, yes, primarily through the medium of the piano, but that's not all we're teaching. We have so much more to teach than that. And music is not just about reading. So when we think about progress, especially in preschool lessons, we can't just be thinking about their progress with reading music. There is no such thing as going too slowly as long as you're moving. And we need to focus more on the experience of each lesson and our students loving music. And we know all these things, but we need to come back to them again and again. So to illustrate this, I want you to meet one of my students. This is Freddie. Freddie started with me as a preschooler. And he had a lot of trouble initially with visual patterns in particular. So he, it took him a long time to learn the piano keys and certainly to be able to read on the staff. But in particular, the piano keys were challenging for him. And we had to do a lot of work to build up to that. A lot of games, patterning activities, worksheets, everything. But because I had been teaching preschoolers for several years by the time I met Freddie, I was able to balance that, do it in little increments and not be stressed out by it because I could develop all these other skills at the same time and really use that time to my advantage. So in Freddie's first year, he developed the most rock solid sense of rhythm. He could form any rhythm pattern you gave him reliably and confidently. He could find the beat in music and also use Italian terms to describe the tempo and the dynamics, and he could improvise beautifully. He could make the most beautiful music with me accompanying him on the black keys or the white keys, something simple, but he would make lovely melodies, land on the tonic at the end, and just make gorgeous music. So, most importantly with Freddie, he was also delighted with himself. I never let on that it was frustrating that he wasn't getting the piano keys because I didn't feel frustrated because I had those several years of experience under my belt and I knew that it would come with time. So Freddie left every lesson delighted with himself, proud of himself, and with a huge smile on his face, which of course is delightful for me. So sometimes with a student like Freddie or with a student who's struggling in any area, we just need to check our own expectations. We need to think about, anytime we're getting frustrated, we need to think about how, what am I expecting here? What am I getting frustrated by? And we need to ask ourselves these questions. We need to ask, does the student enjoy their lessons? And as I mentioned with Freddie, yes, absolutely. He loved every lesson. He left it delighted with himself and he smiled his way through the entire lesson. So he loved music. He loved taking his lessons. And was he making progress? Yes, Freddie was making progress in tons of areas, just not with finding piano keys and naming them and with reading, because he hadn't learnt the letters yet, the pattern was difficult for him to decipher, and, you know, it was just challenging. But that's one area. 
So sometimes when it comes to progress in preschool lessons, we need to step back and ask ourselves those questions. And just if they are making progress and they are enjoying music and enjoying their lessons, we need to have a conversation with ourselves more than anything else. So that's what I want to encourage you to think about. Because with preschoolers, we have the luxury of time. And I come back to this idea again and again because it's one of my favourite things about starting students so young. It's one of the things I love about it. Because if you imagine taking on a 10-year-old student and think about it as having this alarm clock that's going to go off when they get to 13. Because by age 13, they need to be able to play something for most kids, right? They need to be able to play something that sounds cool to their other teenage friends or they are going to quit. That is probably the reality. So if they start with you at age 10 or 11, you have two or three years in order to get them up to a standard where they sound awesome enough to impress their friends. That's tough. And you're going to skip over some things. You're going to rush through some technique and tell yourself you're going to come back to it later. You're not going to cover every single scale under the book. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's fine. If a student gets to piano at age 10 and they start then, that's fine. But with a preschooler, you have this luxury of time. You have 10, 9 or 10 years before they get to be 13. And you can use that time to have a lot of fun, build an amazing appreciation for music in all different styles and genres. You can build up amazing foundational rhythm skills and all the terms you need. You have so much more time to play with. So don't stress the small stuff. Okay, parents. This one comes with a smile on my face because I could give you a whole presentation about involving parents, but we're just going to talk about it in the context of preschool lessons. And our big question is how involved should the parents be in the lessons, right? And I cannot answer this question for you. It is impossible for me to do so, but I can ask you several other questions in order to help you answer it for yourself. So how much practice do you expect? How much practice are you going to expect from your preschoolers? Is it going to be 30 minutes a day, five days a week? Less? More? You need to make that decision for yourself. How much progress are they going to expect? So you'll know this better than me because it's based on where you live and the culture in your area and their motivation for taking lessons. What are your goals for your students? What do you want them to get out of it? And why are they taking lessons in the first place? Only you can answer those questions. But that's where you need to start when you're going to decide what the practice expectation is going to be and how involved the parents need to be in your studio. Because the speed of progress, how fast they go, and is directly related to how much practice they do. And in the case of preschool students, how much practice they do and how effective that practice is, is directly related to parent support. Because a four-year-old cannot remember to brush their own teeth. They can't tie their own shoelaces yet. They certainly cannot conduct an efficient practice session entirely by themselves without prompting and reminding and help from a parent. So it's not about demanding parents are involved. It's about deciding where your line is and making your expectations extremely clear. Make it clear to yourself. Answer those questions for yourself. Be honest with yourself about it. And then you can make those expectations clear to parents. How much practice are you going to expect? Will the parents sit in on lessons if they're going to be very involved at home? They may need to do that. And you may need to do that if your parents, you may need to have a policy of allowing that at least if the parents do not have a musical background, because otherwise you're excluding families who don't have that musical training, who aren't going to be able to help at home otherwise. 
what exactly should they do at home? How are you going to communicate exactly what they need to practice and how they need to practice it? And if possible, give them a choice. The choice I give in my studio is between group class and buddy lessons, which are solo and combined partner time. So in my studio, my group class has no practice expectation. It's a lovely weekly class where we get together, we have a lovely time, they learn things about music and the piano in a general way, we don't do any reading and there's no practice, they don't even need to have a piano at home. Versus my solo or buddy lessons where they do need to have a piano at home. The parent has to be involved and they have to practice five days a week. Have to is strong, I don't enforce this in any way, but I make it very clear when they start and I have an interview with them, which I highly recommend for all teachers, but especially those taking on young students, that you have an interview with them. And a lot of teachers will think that that interview or that first meeting is to decide if the child is ready. Because if they ask this question, if teachers ask this question, if parents ask this question, the place it's coming from, in my opinion, is the child ready for traditional lessons where they mostly sit at the piano? And if that is the case, I'm afraid they are probably not ready because that's not the right way to teach most preschoolers. Okay, so I think that's the wrong question. And I think the right question is, is the parent ready? If you're going to have lessons in some kind of a traditional format with a practice expectation, is the parent ready to participate at home and become a coach at home? Because if they're not, you need to give them another option. And the option can be just Listen, there's a general music class down the street. You would be better off in that if you're not going to put in this practice time. And I totally understand. And that'll also be a great foundation for your child. And they can come back when they're seven or eight and can be more independent with their practice. A little bit more independent, right? So our final building block then, establishing an amazing foundation so far. And to cap it all off, we need some wonderful playfulness. So I want to make a case for some serious silliness. And the longer I've taught, the sillier I have gotten. (laughs) So when I first started teaching, I was quite proper and I would have been very self-conscious with some of the things that I do now. But I've gotten sillier and sillier and my students have benefited from it. It's been wonderful for their progress and for how much we enjoy the lessons. We need to get playful with all our students and the younger they are, the more important this is because this is how children learn. Have you ever seen a child playing, you know, when they've nothing else to do and they're left to play, left to their own devices? They will pick up objects in the room and try to fit them together. They will try to make things work. They'll make things talk to each other as if they're adults having a conversation. All of these things are play and it's how they understand the world, right? They're designed to play because it's beneficial and it helps them to learn about the world. It also leads to better retention. So yes, Taking playful strategies to teaching and to learning takes longer. All of the things I'm about to show you take longer than just telling someone or giving them a simple explanation. But it also leads to better retention of these concepts. So you're going to take longer to do it once, but you're going to repeat it less times. It also leads to more flexible knowledge that they can use in different ways. So it's not just that they understand it in this one particular way, but that they can take that and apply it somewhere else. So if you've ever had a child who can do something on a worksheet but can't do it in a different context, back at the piano or in a different circumstance, then that was not flexible knowledge. Whereas when they play with that, when they get creative with it, 
it will be more flexible. And it's also more fun for them and it's more fun for you. And that's what I'm all about, because I think teachers should be smiling all day and getting to giggle during their teaching time. Now, I know that playfulness doesn't come naturally to everyone. And as I said, when I was younger, it didn't come as naturally to me as it does now. I've gotten sillier with time. But being playful is much like being creative. And by that, I mean, it's not that some people have it and some people don't. It's a skill. You can practice it. You can learn how to do it. So I'll give you a few tools now that can be your go-to strategies for making something playful whenever it is getting to use, you know, teacher giving a lecture or you say something and they have to remember it. These are the strategies you can use to make it more playful. The first one is to simply tell a story. And for this, I want you to meet my student, Daniel. Now, Daniel is the older brother of Freddie, who you met earlier. And since he's the older brother and I started with him as a preschooler, it's only logical that I started with him a few years before. And this was a few years less experience with preschool students, right? So I knew less about what I was doing. And Daniel started with me and I immediately discovered very, very bright kid. No problem with patterns, which is what Freddie had in the beginning. Certainly not. But obedient, very well behaved, would do what I asked, but clearly did not like me and therefore had the opinion that he didn't like the piano. So this was a problem. But then one day, Daniel came into the lesson, lessons I slightly dreaded because he did not like me, but he came in and he had a little toy dinosaur in his hand. And I said, oh, that's cool. What type of dinosaur is that? Do you know? Is it a... And I had a guess. I don't know what I said. Stegosaurus. And he said, no, actually, it's such and such. And he proceeded to tell me all about the such and such dinosaur a name I had never heard of before in my life. And light went off in my head and I thought, this is it. This is my way in with this kid. So I let him put his toy up on the piano, which I don't think he was expecting at all. And I used it throughout the lesson. I told stories about it. I brought it into our playing. I let him play keys with it. We did all sorts of silly stuff with it. And from then on, anytime we needed to learn about something, I could relate it back to dinosaurs and build our relationship to the point where he actually enjoyed piano and enjoyed my company as well. So stories don't have to be based around an individual interest of a child, although that's a great way to do it if they have something like that. If they love ballet, make it about ballet. They love spaghetti, make it about spaghetti. But if you need a go-to, again, animals. Animals are the go-to movement or even mythical animals will do too to tell stories about in your lessons. If you need further evidence of how much Daniel loved dinosaurs, this is a piece he wrote a few years later called Tyrannosaurus Rex when we did an animal-themed composing project. Another way to get playful is to simply move more. Find a way to bring movement into what you're doing. So if you're listening to a piece of music and you're trying to decide whether it sounds more like a lion or an ant, get up and be lions and be ants. If you're learning about high sounds and low sounds, stretch up tall for the high sounds and crouch down low for the low sounds. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be prescribed in a particular way. You can just float around the room to the music. You can jump about. You can march, of course, in time with music. But bring movement into everything you do as much as possible. And consider it when you're planning your lessons as well, that you're doing moving, not moving, moving, not moving. Another way to get playful is to sing more. I use singing as a playful way to correct kids a lot. 
So if they're playing a wrong note, I simply sing the right one, sing the right tune, and they fix it themselves, and off we go. Rather than saying, no, it's an E, it's a much more playful way to go about it. You can also play singing games. Kadai Philosophy uses this a lot, and you can find great ones on the Kadai Hub, which is amazing. It's quite new, this website, and it's totally free. You just become a member, but it's in a free account, and you sign in and you have access to their huge catalogue of singing games and songs, uh, folk songs, based on the Kadai philosophies. You can also use singing, of course, to teach people terms and things they need to remember. Great examples of this are the alphabet song, or if you've ever heard the element song that people use to memorize the periodic table of the elements, or a friend of mine in our teenage years remembered pi up to a crazy amount of digits because he had a song for it, right? So songs are great tricks for making things playful, making things fun that might not otherwise be. And then there's the ultimate act of playful music making, and that's improvisation. Now, if you've ever tried improvising with a preschool student and they've just bashed away at the keys, for example, if you said, okay, play anything you want on the black keys and you proceed to play some beautiful little chord progression and they just smash the black keys, please have heart and please don't give up because honestly, a lot of preschoolers do this. They either do that or they play almost no sound at all. And whichever way they go, that is their way about, of learning, getting used to the touch of the piano and learning about where the boundaries are and what's going to be right and wrong in your eyes. And you need to gently guide them to using just one finger if they're bashing it with their palm over several lessons, but you don't need to correct them about it. And please, please do not give up on them. Don't think that just because they did that, that they're not musical in that way, that improvisation is not their thing. Absolutely keep going. And whether it takes months or a year for them to produce something that sounds like a melody, it's still worthwhile. They're still getting used to the touch of the piano. At the very least, they're developing their technique and how they move. Do improvisation in every lesson, if at all possible, and keep the music playful and imaginative, not just prescribed. And then, of course, you can play actual games, and I have tons of those. My site is something I'm known for. I do lots of that. But that's not what playfulness is to me. The games are one part of it, but they're just one part of the lesson. They're a great way to work on theory in a way that is fun for everyone and helps students retain concepts better. But every part of the lesson is playful, and I bring play into everything we do as much as possible. So to illustrate some of these playful points, we're just going to do a quick final exercise with the Tufprani. So this is a Tufprani poem. First of all, we'll just say it together, just chant it, try, try to say roughly in time with each other. So it goes, Tufprani, Tufprani, your notes are so canny. I say them all day to remember their names. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, and then Eta. These are my Tufprani note names. Not the catchiest of poems, I grant you that. But can you remember the note names? And don't answer if you already know the letters of the Greek alphabet, but otherwise think about it. Can you remember them? Okay, maybe some of them, maybe alpha, beta, because you knew those already. Maybe gamma, because we learned it earlier. Okay, now we're going to play a little game to help us remember a bit better. So this time we're going to say the same poem, just chant it again. But every time there's a word beginning with a vowel, I don't want you to say that word. I want you to do a clap instead. Okay, ready, and... 
Tooth pranny, tooth pranny, your notes so canny. Say them day to remember their names. Beta, gamma, delta, zeta, then these my tooth pranny note names. Okay, can you remember them any better? Did focusing on that de detail, did making it more difficult help you remember them a bit better? Awesome. One more trick to try, and that's our singing playfulness technique. This is the Tooth Pranny poem again. I've set it to a possibly familiar melody. I promise I didn't choose this out of bias, but more out of the rhythm that I needed. So we'll sing it together. Ready and Tooth Pranny, Tooth Pranny, your notes are so canny. I say them all day to remember their names. Alpha, Beta and Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, and then Eta. These are my tooth pranny note names. Okay, any better? Do you think if you sang that song a few times it would be the easiest way to remember it? I do. If I just sang that part of the song with the letters, that's how I would remember them. So I want to encourage you to make playing into your job. See it as your primary role in teaching preschool students. Tell stories to them. Jump, dance, march, move at any opportunity. Sing and play with your voices. Make animal sounds, make siren sounds together. And improvise and create your own music. So the five foundations we've covered today, we've covered a lot of ground. We talked about posture and pointers and how to teach technique to preschoolers. We talked about patterns and helping our students to become super pattern seekers just like us, using hooks and manipulatives. We talked about pacing and progress in our lessons and how sometimes we need to step back and just think about it and think about whether our student is progressing or whether we're just stressing over nothing. We need to carefully consider how big a role we want parents to play and what the practice expectation is going to be. And then we need to try and add play into every aspect of what we do to make the lessons engaging, fun and memorable for our students. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. I wanted to let you know that I have a special challenge coming up to celebrate Vibrant Music Teaching's second birthday in a few weeks. And if you want to sign up for that challenge, totally free for everyone, it's at vibrantmusicteaching.com birthday. There'll be daily prizes as well as informational talks and presentations each day to help you make your teaching more creative. VibrantUsicTeaching.com slash birthday. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.